0: Welcome back everyone to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. And I'm very excited today to be speaking with Clayton Howard. Dr. Howard is an associate professor of history at Ohio State University and is the author of The Closet and the Cul-de-Sac, The Politics of Sexual Privacy in Northern California, which came out in 2019 from the University of Pennsylvania Press, and which we will be discussing today. Welcome to the New Books Network, Clay. Uh, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, I'm happy to have you. Um, we always begin on this show by just hearing a little bit about the authors. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Um, so I I
1: moved a lot growing up. I was kind of thinking about like what kinds of biographical information might be relevant to understanding the book. And so um, I've lived in Columbus, Ohio, for eight, nine years now. That is by far the longest I've ever lived any place. Before that, I never lived anywhere more than four years. Um, so I moved a whole lot growing up, including to different suburbs around, around the country. So that kind of informs part of, um, like where my biography meets the historical analysis and then I also was thinking I would share that, so I, um, I was a little kid in the 1980s and the early 1990s, which of course was like, um, maybe the, uh, I don't know what to call it, like a, the, the outbreak of AIDS. And uh, the politics of AIDS are among the earliest politics that I remember. And on paper, you wouldn't think that my family really had um, any more or less connection to the epidemic and the politics of it than anyone else. Um, I, I did not know anyone who was HIV positive or who had AIDS, um, but there, is, there are several members of my family who are um, disabled, uh, including me. I'm a type 1 diabetic, and my brother is um, very disabled, so disabled that he, he couldn't live at home when I was growing up. And so even though, like, diabetes is obviously very different from AIDS, there was a the way that people um, were either indifferent or hostile to people with AIDS felt really real to me. And it was like part of the discussions I was having with my family growing up. And I think that that part of my biography um, informs like how I come to the book and how I think about these issues.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and you know, obviously, we'll be getting into talking all about this in the book in a little bit. But you know, it's a book that's all about the the, the, the politics of sexuality and how those politics play out, you know, around kitchen tables in suburbs. And it sounds like that you you had a very uh, uh, personal experience with that growing up when you did. Yeah, to some degree. Yeah. 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 Um, And then kind of more generally, how did you become interested in history? What brought you to this discipline? Did you have an abiding interest in history as as, as a kid? Did you come to it later? What's the story there?
1: I did have a lot of interest in it. Um, I sort of like loved it in high school in particular. And like, you know, like a lot of historians, I had really great teachers that inspired me. Um, But I think the turning point for me wanting to be a professional historian is when I went to college, and I wanted to major in something else, but my, my university didn't, um, like the program wasn't up and running yet, so I had like a gap in my freshman schedule. And I ended up taking a class in the Vietnam War. And I remember, I remember like sitting in the auditorium and my, my reaction kind of like every week was, um, how do I not know this? How do more people not know this? I can't believe this happened. Um, and it, there was a really kind of powerful sense of um, outrage that people didn't know, that like this wasn't part of what people were talking about all the time. And then also um, just a real, I, mean, I really learned that history can be really powerful. Um, and so I credit the professor of that class, Carol Patillo, and um, yeah, some of the other college professors that I had. And that, that was a moment where I was like, I, I feel like this is something that I wanna do um, for a living.
0: And then one more uh, sort of background or overview question that I was curious about. You you talked a bit earlier about how you came to the, the topic of the history of sexuality. But this book is also about the history of the idea of privacy and the idea of, of kind of uh, sexual privacy. And I'm wondering how you came to that particular aspect of the history of sexuality. What led you to that that sort of subtopic within this broader field?
1: Well, that involves, I think, some of my experiences in, in grad school. Is it okay if I jump ahead to- Yes,
0: yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, sure. Well,
1: so um, I went to grad school at the University of Michigan and it was in the early 2000s. And I I look back on that period of my life and I'm happy now, but I look back on it and I was like, that was a really uh, great period in my life where I was surrounded by a community of other scholars, faculty and grad students who were having really vibrant discussions about the history of race in the United States. Um, and particularly how the history of the suburbs relates to the history of of race. And so I'll get to your answer, your question about privacy in a second, but I I think there are kind of three important things that I learned in those conversations that led me to to the issue of privacy and sexuality. So the first is that while we were going to these workshops and reading these books and having these discussions, it became really clear to me that in the post-war, late 20th century United States, the ways that people, like what people said the government was doing, and what the government was actually doing, were were the, the relationship between those things was often thin. That um, and in the case of the suburbs, people often think and thought of the suburbs as the product of hard work and individual achievement, which of course they were in part, but there also are were heavily subsidized by local, state, and federal governments. And if you realize that the government is shaping that process, debates about things like welfare, public assistance, um, public housing, they all look really different when you, when you realize that some of the people who are most critical of welfare policies are, are often the biggest beneficiaries of um, government programs. The second, the second part of those conversations that was really relevant was that most of my understanding of race, racism in America focused on Jim Crow and the South and that because the government not only subsidized suburban growth after World War II, government officials also had a whites only policy. They mandated redlining. Um, They forbade loans um, that they were subsidizing going to people of color. When you, when you realize that, you have to start thinking about that the history of racism in this country is much bigger than just Jim Crow and extends beyond the South. And the third piece of this was that, this this particularly come, came out of conversations around my advisor, Matt Lassiter's book, The Silent Majority. And that's a book that looks at school integration debates in the Sunbelt South, North Carolina, um, Atlanta, in the 1960s and 1970s, and what he found is there were lots and lots and lots of white people who did not identify with massive resistance. The the, the KKK, the people who wanted to shut down the schools rather than let even token integration happen. The, The white people at the center of his book wanted their schools open because they wanted their kids to go to college and get an education. And they weren't really all that invested in the issue of integration though. And so they would kind of tolerate maybe token integration where a few African American students would go to their local high school where they supported um, busing across neighborhood lines on the other side of the city where working class white people live close to African American neighborhoods. And so the kind of takeaway from that book is that there's a whole group of, of white people who have their own set of politics, their own white privilege or class privilege. That is very different from the from the from the far right, and the language that they use is one around colorblindness right They believe in equality regardless of race, but because they have so much privilege, they get to decide on whose terms integration happens. like they get to decide what a what a colorblind looks like, what colorblindness looks like in a race conscious uh, world right like they, they live in a segregated city, but they get to decide what what colorblindness looks like. So while I was having those discussions, and like I said, they were really influential on me, um, you know, this was the early 2000s, and Americans, including in Michigan where I was living, were passing constitutional amendments banning same-sex marriage. And as I mentioned before, I mean, the the same-sex marriage debates felt so similar to the debates around um, bullying after Matthew Shepard's murder, um, the gays in the military debates, AIDS, and really, so much of the of the politics around gay rights that i that g- I grew up with, like they were like my entire life, these were part of the debates, and same-sex marriage was only the latest chapter therein. I began to kind of ask myself, how are the things that I'm talking about in my seminars, these workshops that I'm reading in these books, how how can they help me understand this moment? And so you, you originally you asked me about, how did I come to think about privacy? Well, my my kind of original question was, if colorblindness is this term that unites people on all sides of the political spectrum, it's not just conservatives who believe in colorblindness in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so forth, what is the equivalent when it comes to the politics of sexuality? And I I began to notice that it was privacy. So the, the kind of language of what you do in your bedroom uh, is your business, but I shouldn't have to know about it. And privacy can get mobilized to combat discrimination, right? Like you shouldn't hate people, you shouldn't fire people for their personal lives, but it also can be a way to shove people back into the closet. Say, your, your, your coming out violates my right not to know about um, your relationships, your sex life, and so forth. And just like colorblindness, I think it's much bigger than the religious right that, and I think that straight straight identity shapes how we understand privacy that it that it's a very like unequally it's very unequally applied and that the privilege of the person articulating it is the person who gets to decide like what is too public and what constitutes discrimination
0: that's such an interesting way to, to frame that question. And, you know, it, it just gets me, me thinking about other ways that language or rhetoric, um, or ideas that seem neutral or even, even, you know, positive, as, as you're saying, can actually be utilized, be marshaled to uphold existing power structures. That's a, that's a really clarifying way of, of, of putting that, I think.
1: Yeah. What I love about it is that it feels like common sense.
0: Yes, you know? I, as you were saying that, and I've read the book. I was like, oh yeah, that, that's exactly how, how it works, huh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> So before we get into uh, uh, the, the the chronology, the arc of the book itself, I just want to go over one of the core concepts that you utilize in the book because it's, I feel like it's going to pop up a lot in the conversation that we're going to to have. Can you explain the idea of the straight state, where it comes from, and why it's so important for understanding the the, the history and the politics of sexuality in the United States in the mid twentieth century?
1: Yeah, you're right. It is a really important concept, and the mm-hmm. the term the straight state is the title of a landmark book by a historian named Margot Cannaday. And before I explain what her book is about, I have to kind of give like a brief overview of um, what's kind of weird about the history of sexuality. I mean like talk talk about like common sense. Like there's a lot in the history of sexuality that I imagine will contradict most listeners' understanding of the subject. So other historians have looked at the 19th and early 20th century and like gay and straight were not meaningful categories and what i mean by that is yes people had relationships with people of the same sex but it it didn't necessarily or always translate into them thinking themselves as gay and the wider society sometimes punished people who did that or stigmatized it but not not always and so if someone had sex with someone of the opposite sex it wasn't like heterosexuality wasn't necessarily the term that they use to describe it. It's really, it's really around World War II that those terms and that like, axis of like categorizing people as homosexual or heterosexual takes off. And Margot Kennedy's book, The Straight State, is a look at federal policy. First, like the first half of the book is about before World War II and um, how the federal government kind of regulates same-sex desire, uh, same-sex relationships, And sometimes it punishes it and sometimes it doesn't. But after World War II, the federal government has like a category of person, homosexual, that it denies veterans benefits, it denies immigration, um, removes from the military, and so forth. So so the the period after World War II is really notable um, kind of for two reasons, like it's it's the period in which um, Americans come to think of themselves not just as you know, quote, unquote, normal people having sex with someone of the opposite sex and marrying them, it, it becomes a health psychological issue. It's heterosexuality is the term that they use to understand themselves. And it's also a period of greater policing of um, people with same sex desire and same sex relationships. And I mean, like policing in the like most obvious sense of like, you could get arrested at a gay bar, or lose your job, but also, um, because the federal government was also rewarding people who were marrying and were in heterosexual relationships, one per- one person's benefit was another person's loss.
0: So let's start to get into the book and see how this story plays out over the course of, like a, in the book you cover like a 30, 40-ish year period um, in the, the, the post-war era, and then toward the end of the book you bring it up to the present day. And I kind of want to walk us through their chronology a little bit. And to start, let's just begin by setting the context a little bit. Why choose the Bay Area as your case study? And then as kind of a a follow up to that, what were the sexual politics of San Francisco and the area around San Francisco during the 1940s? Tell us about sex education, the idea of the street as it pertains to sexuality and moral panic
1: okay, so there's a lot, there's a
0: lot it's, it's there. That's a big question, yeah. As yeah. I'm, as I was reading it, I was thinking, this is kind of a big, unwieldy question, so I can repeat some of it if you need. No, it's a great question, but I'll, <laughs> I'll break it into two parts.
1: And the first is okay. like, why, um, you know, why the Bay Area? And yeah. it's, um, I mean, it's a little weird, but I, I did not initially intend to study San Francisco, if that makes any sense, which is like surprising given where the book went. But when, again, when I was having these like really vibrant discussions, Um, in grad school about the history of the suburbs. I read a book called Suburban Warriors about Orange County and it's about conservatives. And Lisa McGurr, the author of the book argues that one reason why the new right comes into existence is that there's like this huge influx of new people into California. And a lot of them are moving there uh, because of the military and defense spending. And so Orange, Orange County, California near LA is like one of the biggest beneficiaries of military spending. Again, there's that theme of like what the government is doing and what people think it's doing. So I actually wanted to initially write a similar book and I was looking for a place that um, had a similar kind of makeup or breakdown. And Santa Clara County, which is like now Silicon Valley, but in the 50s and 60s it was also one of the largest Um, recipients of military and defense spending after World War II, actually more than Orange County. It was like behind LA, San Diego, Santa Clara, and the Bay Area, then Orange County in terms of um, counties in California that got got military aid. So I I was initially drawn to the Bay Area, not for San Francisco, but for the suburbs. And I was thinking that I would tell the story as um, San Jose, which is um, a much smaller city in the 1950s, in Santa Clara County, the, the South Bay, and its relationship to its suburbs. But out, as I began to like work on the project, it just it just became so clear that um, San Francisco was so much more important. Like in terms of the Bay Area's like economy, its um, demographics, like San Francisco was way more important than San Jose. Um, you know, and I say that with a lot of love and respect for San Jose. It just was much smaller. Um, and the other the other issue is that the archives were much better in San Francisco, that um, I found it a little hard to find the evidence I needed um, all in the suburbs. Like I had to rely a lot on local newspapers, and San Francisco had like the San Francisco Public Library and the San Francisco History Center, um, the GLBT Historical Society of Northern California. Um, Those archives really helped me write the story that I wanted to write.
0: And then what were the sexual politics of San Francisco? So I, I can very much relate to just kind of following the sources to an extent, and, and seeing where, where the best sources will, will lead you. Um, what did you find in getting into those, those sources? Tell us a bit about what's going on on the ground in and around San Francisco in the 1940s.
1: So I think, so in many ways, I think actually San Francisco is more representative of the country than, than people usually think. Um, but what was going on in San Francisco in the 40s is that there's a, a pre-existing middle class view of sex that gets overturned by by the war. That like there's suddenly there's millions of people moving to San Francisco, and the ideas that a lot of San Franciscans had about what does respectable sexuality look like got overturned. Um, so let me let me explain. So, in San Francisco and a lot of other cities, going back to the 19th century, Americans thought of sexuality primarily as a part of your character, right like what where do your morals come from? How do you become a good person? And the way that they talked about it, again in San Francisco and elsewhere, was, well, the home school and church need to work together to, to build um, good citizens, good people like those are the The parts of the city like the literal places and the institutions would teach young people and their parents how how to be good and then the flip side of that worldview is the street and the gutter and so when you have bad sexuality you have you participate in alley talk your ideas are from the gutter uh, and the street and i think to some degree we still kind of use some of these terms but they They really are rooted in the urbanization of the late 1800s and early 20th century. So that's how most San Franciscans, particularly like middle-class San Franciscans who were invested in in a kind of hierarchy of like respectable behavior, how they understood the world. And when you broke the law, when you broke the rules, you violated the preventative agencies when you engaged in stuff from the street, that's when the police had to get involved. And it's notable because in that worldview, no one thinks sexuality is private. It's a collective enterprise that Americans are building together and that if you break the rules, you deserve punishment. So when World War II happened, it uprooted millions and millions of people who were moving in and out of places like San Francisco. This is one way where San Francisco is kind of exceptional because it was on the coast and it was you know, the, 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 the port going out to the Pacific Theater. But this is a process that transforms cities across the country. And so you get large numbers of people detached from their families, from their homes, um, from the institutions that would regulate their sexual behavior. And there's a kind of sexual revolution in San Francisco in the 1940s. The the biggest part of that is, um, you know, sailors sleeping with people in, in, in the city of San Francisco. But there's also a... Um, a, a gay re- revolution. So I should have said the sailors in the, in the previous example were, were were straight or having sex with men with women, but there also was a moment of, of of real freedom for gay men in particular, but also a certain number of lesbians living in the Bay Area. And so in the '40s, around the sexual revolution, San Franciscans began to mobilize to try to restrain that sexual revolution, and they tried to empower the home, school, and church to restrain what they saw as the sexual morality of the street. So the beginning of the book is about that mobilization.
0: And how does the straight state function in the immediate post-war era in the 1940s and especially getting into the 1950s? How is the state in California or somewhat on the federal level too, incentivizing heterosexual sexual relationships and policing any sexuality which deviates from this perceived norm?
1: So the straight state, um, you know, I, I understand it as being something that that's the federal government. but it's also the state of California. It's also mm-hmm. local governments. And so it, it um, punishes um, sexuality that it sees as deviant. It responds to the kind of panic in San Francisco and other cities by increasing the penalties, kicking people out of the military for for gay sex. Uh, the police are closing gay bars. Um, but it's also incentivizing them to do other behaviors. So this is the moment where heterosexuality, you know, where good character gets tied up in health and psychological development. And so the homeschool and church become places not only where they're producing good character, they become places where state authorities start encouraging people to think about how is it we can produce good heterosexual citizens. And heterosexuality, as they understood it, was something that you developed if you had good role models in your life, your parents, your teachers, the clergy. And so by giving those people the latest psychological information about about sexuality, they they thought San Franciscans could combat the immorality they were seeing around them by uh, creating sex education campaigns to help them teach people to behave right, but it was tinged with like science and health.
0: There's a really interesting story I feel like in this book about the history of expertise as it pertains to sexuality and who gets to decide what is expert opinion and how the idea of expertise is sort of interpreted by, by people who are on the receiving end of this expertise as well that I, I, I saw kind of as a thread throughout the book. This is one of those moments. Yeah, I mean, and this is
1: like, maybe famously in history circles, this is the period where experts, you know, Americans Mm -hmm. love experts, like Mm -hmm. um, people are reading Dr. Spock. Yes, Uh, exactly. If you have PhD,
0: MD, uh, you have a lot of uh, authority and
1: people, people listen to you.
0: I think about advertising and how much you know the commercials in the 1950s will turn to some guy in like a white coat who is giving you know often typically his right his idea on why a certain you know cigarette or product is is good for you. This is this is indeed a, a real era of expertise.
1: Yeah, I used to teach the the movie Psycho as a part of the history of sexuality, and I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember it, but at the very end of the movie, after the whole mystery and. It all it's all solved there's like a there's like some sort of medical expert comes in to explain psycho and like why, oh my God, why he I lost his that. way
0: yeah yeah <laughs> that's so funny i gotta watch that again um and of course as much as this is an era of, of expertise this is also the era with with the rise of the suburbs um particularly in california i feel like if if people, historians or or non-historians think about suburbanization. They're either thinking about, you know, maybe like Levittown or they're thinking about suburban California. So in the book, you say that suburbanization was a turning point in the history of sexuality in the United States. How was that the case?
1: I think it was a turning point in the history of sexuality, both in terms of um, where people lived, like part of it is a history of migration. And, and the communities that result from it. And the other part of it is the ideal of, of privacy. So, so the straight state is doing a lot of things after World War II. And I, I mentioned earlier that the government heavily subsidized suburban growth. One of, the, one of the requirements that the government placed on banks and other institutions who helped create the suburbs was that if you wanted the subsidy, if you wanted government support, you had to follow certain guidelines, including you should you should lend to married men because marriage allegedly taught married men responsibility. You should not you should not lend to people you suspect of immorality, and that homosexuality was one of those categories. You should never lend to people who wanted to be roommates. That's like in the that's like in the book, and um, what that does collectively. Oh, also, I should mention that if you were if you were kicked out of the military for homosexuality or suspected homosexual conduct, you were also denied benefits on the GI Bill. So collectively, what that does is that as millions of people suddenly have the ability to buy new homes, and those rules also had racial restrictions, I think I mentioned, you start to get the outward migration of millions of white, married, um, many of whom straight-identified homebuyers who start to move to places like Santa Clara County, California, but really the suburbs everywhere. And when they get there, they're suddenly in new communities with you know tens of thousands, if not millions, of other parents and newly married people. And one of the things that they have in common is parenting and marriage. So those sex education campaigns that I told you about earlier were really popular in the post-war suburbs, and the PTAs and the churches, um, homeowners associations, all kinds of like civic groups in the suburbs start to encourage either sex education in schools or parent education where they talked about the latest kind of science around sexuality. The, The flip side of that migration was that large numbers of openly gay men and lesbians Um, moved to to San Francisco and and cities like it. And they're moving into a housing market um, where cities are losing population. And particularly if you were white and gay, over the course of the 50s, 60s, and really the 70s, landlords were much more willing to lend to you if they could look the other way in terms of your sexuality. So in, in cities around the country, not just the Bay Area, you start to get concentrations of gay or queer businesses, trans people in, in places like San Francisco, and you get um, kind of large concentrations of straight-identified people in the suburbs. And that's like, a, that's like the broad strokes of it. Of course, there are people in same-sex relationships in the suburbs, and of course, there are straight people still in the city. But that kind of um, shift helps produce new communities, and those new communities would eventually engage in, in politics. Is it okay if I jump to the uh, the second part of that, the ideal? Yes, yes, of course. Okay, so historians of sexuality talk about something called sexual liberalism, which is maybe an awkward term, but it's really helpful, I think, to understand what's going on. So in the 20th century, Americans increasingly saw sex as a sign of love and pleasure, particularly within Marriage. So, you know, in another era, you might say to yourself, well, sex is about reproduction or marriage is about transferring property. It's really in the 20th century that Americans start to associate sex with love and good sex with lasting marriages. So the straight state is requiring um, banks and other institutions to help married couples buy new homes. But they're also regulating the development. It's regulating the development of those new homes. And it's, it, it insists that private bedrooms are a way to create good marriages. That, so, if you think about a home that's built after World War II, the, the master bedroom or the ensuite is, is the farthest away from the entrance and the least public part of the house. Like they talked about this in terms of zoning. So the most public place would be near the front door, the living room. Um, then there's areas that are kind of more... Um, family, like the the group would be like in the kitchen, and then the kids bedrooms and finally the parents bedrooms. And the idea was they wanted to encourage married couples to have um, good sex lives and they're like thinking about World War II and the the kind of overcrowding that took place in places like San Francisco and they're saying now you can finally not live with your in-laws, you don't have to live uh, on top of your neighbors, we're going to space this out. And the government actually required th- that the building of these houses have those kind of zoning requirements, zoning in terms of how the house is spaced out and built. And they don't want children to come into contact with the sex lives of their parents. So at least in its ideal form, the, the parents' bedroom is insulated from other parts of the house. And the idea was they want the parents to feel safe and comfortable. And as you can kind of hear in the way I'm talking about it, they, they had um, heterosexual married couples in mind when they were designing this. But as I mentioned earlier, there were plenty of queer gay people living in the suburbs. And so I found numerous examples where a private bedroom and a private house actually facilitated same-sex couples from um, sometimes living together, having sex, uh, and it's the the privacy that was supposed to shore up a heterosexual norm actually also enabled other people to have different kinds of sex that the house wasn't necessarily uh, intended
0: for. And you mentioned, um you know, key, this this sort of new, newer style of constructing houses and this new idea about the how how a house should be laid out is also, in part about keeping sexuality, adult sexuality away from children. And in the early 1960s in Northern California, you start to see controversy arise over sex education. So could you tell us a bit about uh, debates surrounding sex education in schools in Santa Clara County and in particular the role that religion would play in these debates?
1: Yeah, so I was already familiar when I started the project with um that California and other states had huge, huge fights about sex education in the late 1960s. It's, it's a kind of a key moment when conservatives started to um, mobilize, um, they reacted against what they saw as the permissiveness uh, in their local public schools, and they really, really hated um, sex education, right? That, that, that was the literature that I, that I knew, the books that I read. What I found was that sex education was actually really popular, particularly when it related to teaching parents how to talk to their kids about sex. In other words, sex education, not like in the classroom, but in the home. But also teachers were learning about it and clergy were learning about it. And so in the 50s and 60s in the suburbs, sex education is like a a glue that brings people together, right? because they have something in common, but it also is understood as a public health issue. And so it's so funny to say this now, but in the same way that people get really frustrated with others for not getting vaccinated or not wearing masks, people saw sex education as a way to create normal families, to produce heterosexuality among other things. And they were really frustrated that other people in their community were not doing those things. And so they're saying, you're gonna produce a whole wave of juvenile delinquents, of sexual deviance, that's the language they used. And so sex education must be taught in the schools. It has to be mandatory because you can't rely on, on parents to voluntarily pick up the right book and teach their, their kids the right thing. And so I found in the suburbs, there are these clashes in school districts that are the predecessors of the big fights that come later. And so school districts, Are territorially bound, right? There's like, there's you're either in the district or you're not in public schools, but churches, people cross boundaries all the time. Even Catholic uh, parishes, people shop for churches, so you get kind of a sifting process where people look for the you know the minister that has the kind of worldview that they have, that the, the church that offers the right programming. They want to go to the church where their friends go. That's not too far away. I mean, all these things are at play, and so. In this earlier period, in these like local fights that kind of happen here and there, churches start to mobilize against what they see as an uh, infringement on their territories. So rather than like the home school and church working together, they think that the school is going to usurp the church's role. And so um, they begin pushing for like more prayer in school, um, something called release time education, where uh, people will leave the, the school to go to their, their local church to learn about good morality. And so these debates about sex education are also clashes over institutions and that ideal that I mentioned earlier about how the homeschool and church need to be working together and people couldn't get on the same page about what was, what was the right alignment of the three institutions.
0: So let's bring it back to to San Francisco proper for a minute, because it's around the same time period in the 1960s, particularly toward the middle to the late 1960s, that San Francisco emerges as a major hub of the counterculture, as well as a a major hub of queer life and sexuality in the American West. Can you talk a bit? uh, you, You touched on this earlier, but maybe can you go into a little bit more depth about the linkage between housing, sexuality, and the idea of privacy in San Francisco as well as maybe other urban spaces throughout the United States as the 1960s wear on
1: yeah I think it's important to to, to say again that um, being openly gay you risked a lot of you risked a lot in the 1950s and 1960s what you could lose your job um, you could be arrested at a, at a gay bar San Francisco was really worried like this like the city of San Francisco was worried that it was getting a reputation as being um like a gay mecca um this of course is happening in, in cities around the country i actually found um material in dayton ohio
0: where dayton was
1: also worried about becoming uh, a gay mecca true true story but <laughs> so what, what happens is
0: that, i don't know why i'm laughing at that i guess i just don't think of dayton as really anything at all no offense to anyone from dayton that's listening
1: uh it's a great it's a great city. Um, yeah. But no, it, but for sure, it, it doesn't have the same reputation that San Francisco does. But I bring right, it up right. because I think I think this process happens everywhere. W- were you going to say something? Sorry, I don't want to cut you off.
0: No, no, by all means, I was. Uh, but keep keep talking. You're good.
1: <laughs> okay. So in the in the fifties, there are um, straight identified people for the most part who react to the expansion of the straight state and they know that the state is penalizing people for for sex outside of marriage for homosexuality but the state is also promoting private bedrooms the sex education that it promotes encourages children to respect their parents privacy and so you start to get a very small group of people who push back against the most restrictive laws like the, the laws about you going to jail um, you maybe that a law about the practice of firing people for for being gay at their jobs. They push back and they say, look, we agree that homosexuality is bad, but should the state really be policing this? Don't don't we have a right to privacy? And so over the course of the 50s and 60s, that argument picks up in kind of liberal legal circles. And it's the foundation of some of the, the courts big rulings in the 1960s and 70s. I'm talking about like state courts, but also the Supreme Court. So the Griswold v Connecticut is a, is a case that establishes um, not a right to get con- to get contraception, but it's a, it's a case that says the state can't deny you the ability to get contraception because you have a right to privacy. Later, it, it's not that you not that pornography is good or that you should be allowed to get pornography, but the state can't rob you of the privacy to consume pornography. And so gay groups, gay men, lesbians, to some degree trans people in places like San Francisco and all cities begin to pick up on the exact same rhetoric and they start to make arguments um, on the city, on the state, saying that these kinds of laws are violating their privacy and that consensual adults in private shouldn't be the business of the state.
0: And yet, especially as we get into the 1970s, this same idea of privacy becomes a contentious political issue within a lot of these same queer communities. Can you talk a little bit about this and and about how some people made the argument that this idea of privacy buttressed the concept of the closet? What's the relationship between the concept of privacy and coming out of the closet as we start to get into the 1970s in this story?
1: Yeah, I think the way to understand these conflicts among LGBT people, you have to start with the straight state itself. So there are the penalties, there are the rewards going to straight identified people, and then there's also this discourse around privacy, that privacy is good, and the growing legal arguments that are kind of using the language of the straight state to challenge it, right? That everyone has a right to privacy. So for middle class, gay men and lesbians, privacy becomes uh, a tool to try and dismantle some of those rules, right? They make those arguments like in courts, they make those arguments in politics. And if they were sort of um, most able to conform to other kinds of middle-class notions of respectability, right? particularly if they were white, if they otherwise seemed normal they were better able to normalize or, or mobilize privacy to, to like take down some of those rules, right? And so like um, there, there, there are groups in San Francisco where they would say, you know, I talk to a community group and I'm a gay man and I would show up in a suit and the community group would be like, I'm so shocked to see you wearing a suit. And they would say, well, I'm just like you. Like I go home to my male partner or my female partner but, you know, what we are like at home is not that much different than what you're like at home, and so you should support us. And that's, that's actually a relatively successful argument, even in the 1960s. The, the problem is that not everyone can meet that norm. And so the farther away you were from that norm, right, if you were uh, queer and poor, if you sold sex for a living, if you were trans, you very often couldn't hit that mark and and win the privacy argument with the larger public and at the same time you get large numbers of like radicals who are um, who are inspired by the black freedom struggle the anti-war movement and they invert they invert the the language of the home school and church and the dangers of the street and they start talking about privacy as a uh, as a menace, like privacy and domesticity in the home, it, that's, where, that's where gay and queer people are, re, are uh, oppressed. And so come out, come out of the closet, come into the street and democracy happens in the streets, that like public life is where um, fairness happens. And so you start to get these clashes between different queer communities in San Francisco over whether or not privacy is a good argument for them to be making. And it's maybe worth adding that for some of the poorest people in these debates, they, they like literally did not have bedrooms. They were literally sleeping on the streets. And so an argument around privacy that assumes that you have a private bedroom um, is, not, is not helpful.
0: And then this story, it doesn't end with John Briggs and the Briggs Initiative, but it kind of culminates with John Briggs and the Briggs Initiative. So who was... John Briggs, and what was his initiative? And what does all of this have to do with, uh, uh, with, with gay rights and with the concept of privacy and sexual privacy? So,
1: so John, the, the book begins and ends with something called the Briggs Initiative. Mm-hmm. It, was a, it was a ballot initiative in California. You know, California um, voters can vote on issues separate from the legislature. And it was an attempt by religious conservatives to ban gay teachers. And it's this first statewide referendum on on gay rights in U.S. history. And I I see it as kind of like the the beginning of the sexual politics that are to come. Like, the the debates about the Briggs Initiative in California look a whole lot like the debates that I mentioned earlier over AIDS, the military, Matthew Shepard, uh, and same-sex marriage. One of the reasons I wrote the book is that I feel really strongly that Americans, historians, need to understand the culture wars not as a two-sided debate between um, gay rights activists and the religious right but a multi-sided debate about the boundaries of the closet that there were lots of straight identified people who were shaped by the post-war period who were invested in having a straight identity who both um, are uncomfortable with what they see as the harshness of the religious right but they're also uncomfortable with gay rights. And the way that they the way that they talk, they like mediate those two sides is around privacy. So the Briggs initiative was an attempt to ban gay teachers. Sometimes I see it held up as an example of like this is the rise of the religious right. But what I think is so interesting about the Briggs initiative, it's supported by the religious right, but it fails. It fails so miserably. Like it, like it loses even in Orange County, where John Briggs, the sponsor of the initiative, is from. But it fails often for homophobic reasons. So I found lots of examples of churches in the Bay Area, um, PTAs, parents groups, letters to the editor, where people say all kinds of things that distance themselves. They're like, "I don't, I don't think that you know homosexuality is okay. You know, I'm a straight person." Uh, You know, what you do in your business is your business, and I don't like it when you flaunt it. But they also say, I think this is a dangerous form of censorship. I think that this is a way of religion entering public life in a way that makes me uncomfortable. And so even a moment that one way you could read it as a a great victory for the gay rights movement, it's also a moment of intense homophobia. And so I I use it at the beginning and the end, because I think not only does it predict what comes later, It's a great indicator of how you can think about straight identity politics as being something more than just Jerry Falwell and the religious right.
0: One thing I always tell my students is that history has to embrace complications, right? And that a good understanding of history, it can't shy away from things that are not simply black and white. And I think that the way that you talk about the Briggs initiative in the book is a really great example of how that's the case. That it doesn't it is this kind of multi-sided debate that has these 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 weird quirks and folds in it for sure. Yeah, and I think you can see similar
1: dynamics in the debates over straight marriage or, or excuse me, same sex marriage. Mm-hmm. where a lot of the discussion focuses on like the left and the right and the, you know, um, gay, gay activists and religious conservatives. But my own, my own kind of like intellectual understanding of the debates and this living in America, that there are a lot of people who do not identify with the religious right who, um, first same sex marriage, marriage and then supported it on their own kind of uh, their own terms, their own terms refracted through their straight identities.
0: Yeah. And then in the epilogue, you bring the story up from the end of the 1970s up through today. So where does this story stand here today in the early decades of the 21st century? So
1: I, th- I think that like, this discourse around um, privacy, this like, straight identity politics that's beyond the religious right, I think it's conservative with a small C. It, it allows for reforms, but not revolutions. So I, I think you can see that in the debates around same-sex marriage, that um, early, early activism around the issue of same-sex marriage pointed out how discriminatory marriage is. Um, you know, Why is it that you pay different taxes if you're married? Why is it that you can visit people in the hospital if you're married? Um, why do you get different mortgage rates if you're married, and so forth and so forth? But. It was a losing issue. It was a losing issue for a lot of Americans. Where they, they they said, you know, marriage is really about love. It's about two people caring for one another. And these, these gay activists, like just, they just don't get it. And so I I believe there was like a internal discussion within the movement where they kind of rebranded themselves as marriage equality. And this is where you get the expression "love is love," is that it essentially like you need to de-emphasize the criticism of discrimination. You need to promote the idea that same-sex people, same-sex couples are like other couples and they should be allowed to marry like other couples. And they began to speak about same-sex marriage bans as the government violating the privacy of same-sex couples. And that that started to be a winning argument. The, The irony in all this is that same-sex marriage actually increases the role of government in the sense that more people are getting marriage licenses at city hall. Right? They're not debating uh, a private understanding of marriage; they're debating a, its public dimensions and the rights that that came with it. Um, do you mind if I briefly just mention the the don't say gay bills that people are debating right now? Yes, please do. I was I was hoping that you would. Oh, okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. So as we record this, states like Florida and Ohio are either passing or considering. Um, bills that would restrict what teachers can say in school around um, sexuality. And again, most of the coverage that I see about it um, focuses on like a left-right binary, um, the the kind of standard framing of the culture wars. The thing that I find really interesting about it, and I think it relates to the, the epilogue of the book, even though my book is published and this is happening now, is that the expression, don't say gay bills, is a comment on censorship. And it's it's saying that the state is denying teachers the right to do their jobs, and it's maybe harming queer children in the schools um, by, by not allowing um, them to learn the things that they need to learn. And on the other side of the issue, um, conservatives are arguing that uh, a kind of woke school boards and state education systems are violating parents' rights to teach their own children about morality and so forth. Missing in this debate are the large numbers of straight identified Americans who don't like discrimination, but also um, think that straight relationships are healthier, more important, better than other kinds of relationships. And what strikes me about the expression don't say gay is that it's a comment on what the government can or cannot do, but no no one can say gay is good like the argument cannot be on the left, you can't argue, um, it is important and valuable to teach all children, all teenagers about same-sex relationships, um, age-appropriate sex education that would teach them about um, gay and queer sexuality, and that maybe, just maybe, there are straight-identified kids or teenagers out there who someday might experiment, right? And they might decide to do something other that have a straight relationship, and they might learn about that in school. That would just feed into the idea that the schools are um, turning straight kids gay or queer, and that's a thing that a lot of people don't like. Like the idea that, 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 like they're okay with the idea that there are gay or queer kids who somehow already know that they're gay and queer, and they learned about it somewhere else, and they don't wanna be discriminated against, they don't like bullying, but the idea that the schools might help people form new relationships that they might not otherwise have that is something that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable and I think it's um, the kind of beyond the pale of the debate
0: and it almost goes that saying but so much of the foundation of everything you just described is set you know in the 1950s and in the 1960s as you as you describe very very well in the book well thank you S- yeah so. As we start to wrap up here, I'm wondering if, and you maybe touched on the the answer to this question a bit earlier, but just taking like a a 30,000 foot view of the book as a whole and maybe thinking about uh, uh, what you hope readers will understand. Uh, from this book, what is one takeaway that you hope someone who reads this book might come away thinking about or remembering about the book? You know, a year or five years or so later, what's sort of one big takeaway, one big understanding you hope readers get from your from your work?
1: I think more narrowly, it's the idea that that the that the so-called culture wars with the two sides are actually a multi-sided debate where um, people's ideas about what is normal behavior, what's a normal identity, shapes how they understand um, what, it, like, what discrimination looks like, what does privacy look like, and that, that it's bigger than just the, the, the left and the right. And I think more broadly is that I would like people to think about politics um, as something more than just left and right, and maybe to speak to historians in particular, that there are so many great histories of activists and social movements that I value, but those histories kind of presume that um, that there's kind of people who are inert, who don't have an ideology, that are just kind of waiting for social movements to influence them. And if you if you if you take what I said earlier about how the the privacy is this discourse that can kind of cut one way, be like um, I don't like. Uh, people being punished for what they do in their personal life versus um, keep what you do in your bedroom and don't don't shove it in my face. Like that's the two sides of it. That happens in almost all, all American politics. Um, I can think about like the abortion debate. Um, you know, Bill Clinton said, let's keep abortion safe, legal, and rare. So it's, it's like, we don't wanna ban it, but also we don't wanna say that, it, that abortion is like a legitimate good. Um, I'm working on um, a gun project and, uh, you know, the idea of common sense gun control tries to walk the line between um, some kind of regulation without um, confiscation that allows some kind of gun ownership. I mean, people, people aim for the middle all the time, and they don't necessarily think of themselves as activists, but those kinds of moderates, I think, have a lot of, a lot of power and a lot of privilege that we need to pay attention to.
0: And then I always like to end my conversations with, with, with authors uh, getting a preview of whats what they're working on next. This book's been out for about three years now. And you just mentioned a moment ago, um, a new project on the debates around gun control in the United States. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, even if it's maybe still in the early stages? Sure. Yeah, I've kind of two ideas
1: that, about this that I'm working on. One is that I'm working on a, an academic journal article that looks at gun regulation where the people involved tend to see guns as a nuisance, not a danger. So I'm looking at like suburbs in the 1950s when you get slow incremental increases in gun ownership and you get a lot of debates about um, gun ranges, hunters, and the argument is not about whether or not you have the right to have a gun. The question is about whether or not the gun range is too close to a subdivision and it's about, it tends to be about noise rather than about um, danger. I mean, there's like a little bit of danger, like when people talk about hunters who are hunting too close to the neighborhood. But in general, it's, it's, it's really not a debate about the, the Second Amendment. It's not a debate about whether or not um, guns kill people. Gun owners themselves are often on one side of this debate asking for more regulations. So that's, that's one part of it. And uh, the other thing I'm thinking about is I'm, I would like to look at a history of um, gun violence that focuses on uh, the families or the people who have lost someone uh, in a gun-related incident. And so, so much of the literature on this subject is, is again about the Second Amendment and about the politics of um, gun policy. And I, I kind of would like to like change the story a little bit to look at what are the experiences of people who lost a loved one um, you know, how do they grieve? If someone is um, injured in like a gun accident or a, you know a, an attempted murder or something, um, how do they live their lives after it's over? And I, I think it's a way of um, bringing the, the kind of private moments of uh, suffering and care around gun violence. Because we do have a lot of guns and there are like lots of people who die and are injured in gun related things every year. I think telling those stories is another way of, of looking at the, the history of guns that's that's different than the, the story of the NRA and, um, and and the whether or not we should ban guns.
0: And I can see through lines to the project that we just discussed as well, how you know the idea of the private is actually often publicly political, right? How how what we think of as private often has these these implications for, for, for the wider culture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think the, the thing about the nuisance the 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 nuisance debates is that um, as important as the NRA is in our gun politics, I do think lots of Americans do believe you should have the right to own a gun mm-hmm. uh, and that it's, it's not just some kind of fringe element that's forcing this upon everyone. I do think that there are a lot of Americans who believe in some kind of gun control, you know, quote-unquote common sense, but, but actually think that gun ownership is a fundamental right.
0: And I don't want to belabor this point too much, but, you know, we were talking earlier about the the importance of of expertise. And there's a real link between expertise and this idea of common sense as well. This sounds like a great project. I'm getting kind of excited just talking about it.
1: (laughs) Thanks. I mean, I actually hadn't thought about those terms, but that's exactly right. Yeah, it is. It is a kind of common sense and common sense changes over time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Clayton Howard is an associate professor of history at Ohio State University and is the author of The Closet and the Cul-de-sac, which, by the way, I didn't say earlier, is a really good title also. I don't know if you came up with that on your own or if that was an, an editor's choice, but it's a really catching title as well. Um, Thanks. Yeah. It's my, my friend Will McIntosh uh, in grad school <laughs> uh,
1: was like interested in my project, and he began rattling off potential uh, potential titles and the Closet and the Cul-de-Sac was one of the ones he rattled off, and it stuck.
0: Oh, man, we all need a Will McIntosh in, in our life. Uh shout out, shout out to you, Will, yeah. Um, <laughs> Dr. Clayton Howard is the author of The Closet and the Cul-de-Sac, The Politics of Sexual Privacy in Northern California, which came out in 2019 from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you so much for joining me today, Clay. It was a lot of fun speaking with you. Thank you so much. It was an honor to talk with you.